Hello. Welcome to the Lafayette Podcast. I am Dan Ray. In this episode, I speak to Olivier Blanchard. Mr. Blanchard is an economist, professor and senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Between 2008 and 2015, he was the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund, overseeing its response to the global financial crisis and the Greek debt crisis. In this episode, we discuss what lessons have been learned since the financial crisis and how stable the world economy is today. We discuss the challenges facing the IMF and economic challenges of Brexit. Here is our conversation. Olivier, thank you for joining us today in your office in Washington. My pleasure. So, Olivier, you joined the International Monetary Fund, in, as far as I'm aware, the month that Lehman Brothers collapsed. Yes. And I wanted to ask you now that we're roughly a decade on from the financial crisis, what are the major lessons that we have learned? I think there are various degrees uh, of learning. And the first one is clearly that finance is infinitely more important for macro than most of the profession thought until the crisis. And we basically had malls in which finance was playing nearly no role or very little. And I think what we discovered, or probably rediscovered, uh, and should have known all along, is that uh, financial shocks uh, can be extremely powerful, extremely dangerous, that finance is central to macro. I think that's the first level. The, the second level, the second level is, I think it forces us to rethink all of macro. And we had converged to kind of a business cycles view of macro, which is there are shocks all the time, and then there are propagation mechanisms, and it's fairly regular. And uh, we can represent this by uh, statistical techniques called uh, vector to regressions or VARs. Uh, we can write down more or less linear models uh, called DSGs, and we capture uh, what's going on. And uh, the characteristic of financial crisis is that they are very different from that image of regular fluctuations. They are very infrequent. They are extremely strong. Uh, so it's not shocks all the time. It's once in a while a really big shock. And so this makes you think of policy as very different from just reacting to little shocks. Uh, you have to prepare for it. It's very difficult because these are small probabilities. Uh, and you have to be ready to act very quickly. So I think it has larger implications than just the um, realization that finance is important. I think it's a different view of uh, of the dynamics of the uh, of the economy, which has come out. Why did economists, as a profession, seem to miss the financial crisis coming? To what extent do they deserve blame for for not seeing this? Yeah, I think they deserve blame, and uh, I would be the first one to uh, accept blame. Uh, we had focused on other aspects of the economy. Basically, there was a movement to going back to micro-foundations, first principles. And so the idea was to start from an economy where there were no distortions. And the distortions that many of us had focused in most were nominal rigidities, which mean that which have the implication that aggregate demand matters and so on. But we had left aside all the complexity to focus on that particular issue. And we had come up with a model which looked very useful, which was which is called the New Keynesian uh, model, yeah. 
which basically ignored many things, including finance. Now, I think if we had been more aware of history uh, and financial crisis in the past, or if American economists had been more aware of what was happening in other parts of the world, uh, Japan, uh, Latin America, then we would have realized that that was a risk. Uh, but uh, no, we had, I think, largely forgotten. And uh, so it was a shock. Recently, Yannette Yellen, the chairman of the US Federal Reserve, said that it was unlikely that we would see another financial crisis on that scale in our lifetimes. How, how safe do you think the world economy is now in, in the possibility of there being another crisis on that scale? I think, again, that's uh, what uh, Donald Rumsfeld has called unknown unknowns. Uh, and so one has to be careful never to say never. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but my sense is, yeah, I mean, this crisis was very useful from a conceptual point of view because it forced us to think about what may happen and all kinds of measures have been taken. Whether they're sufficient or not, my impression is probably not quite as much as I would like, but surely the danger is smaller uh, than it was in 2007. So I think at least for a while, until we forget again, and I hope we don't, uh, I would say the probability of a, of a large financial crisis is very low. So in particular, what more policy measures need to be taken, in your opinion, to avert this crisis in the future? I mean, we just have to make sure, uh, getting into specifics, a financial crisis is basically a solvency crisis, which is some people who have, or some institutions which have borrowed, uh, find themselves unable to repay. That's an issue, uh, but that's an issue which is confronted by some firms every day, and by it becomes a big issue when it, the solvency crisis turns into a liquidity crisis, which is that suddenly, although you might be solvent, or maybe not for sure, people want their money now, and you have assets which you cannot uh, you know, dispose of very quickly, and then you go under, and then you affect the other guys, and then it becomes a systemic crisis. So what we need to do is first decrease the probability of insolvency, so higher capital ratios, and there's still a discussion as to you know, what the right level is. Uh, we have to think about what could happen, so these are the stress tests, which are very useful, which say, well, if the world you know, was in bad shape, how would you be? And I think we've made progress, but uh, I don't think that they come, they don't quite nail it. Uh, I mean, we see, we just saw in Europe, a bank which has, which had passed the stress tests with flying colors going under. And so it indicates that the stress tests are not quite ready. Then there's still going to be insolvencies at some point. And then what has to happen here is that you have to avoid it becoming a liquidity crisis. So we have to have central banks which have the ability to provide liquidity. Uh, and uh, in the 2008-9 crisis, it was an issue in the sense that they were not allowed to provide liquidity to some of the actors which needed it. We've made progress here, but we just have to make sure that if part of the financial system needs liquidity, the central banks are in a position to do it. So I think on all these fronts, there has been progress, but there's still some way to go. Given that you moved from 
being in academia at MIT teaching economics to then being in the IMF and implementing policy. To what extent did politics and um, working with different institutions, working with different governments, influence the way that policy there was was driven? And how did that sort of impact on your work? Well, first, uh, in the, the, the passage from MIT to the IMF was not quite as radical uh, as you described, because I had been involved uh, in advising, uh, especially in my country, but in other countries as well. So I had a sense of, uh, of the politics. Uh, now, economic policy is politics plus economics. So when you're at the IMF, you have to think very hard about whether governments are going to be willing to do things and what message you're going to give. Uh, I don't think the politics stood well, that's what you define by politics. I mean, clearly the fact that the German view of the economy is not the same as, say, the Anglo-Saxon view meant that they were not open to some things and they complicated things. Uh, having countries help other countries is always difficult. Uh, this was an issue in Europe. Uh, but these are more, I think, intellectual differences than, than politics in a negative sense. But clearly, you know, what we were able to do or not to do in Europe had a lot to do with the constraints coming from the view of the economy that particular countries had, as well as their willingness to actually do something for others. Uh, and that, you know, in the case of some countries, namely Greece, for example, was, was, was an issue, yes. And, and also one of the particular um, debates was between stimulus and austerity, right. which was very political in the UK and the US. And the UK government, the Conservative government at the time, was quite critical when the IMF um, sort of criticised the austerity policies right. um, of you and your people that you're working with. So, how in the, in that in that particular instance did you find that uh, that the political debate wasn't being informed correctly by economics, or why do you find it difficult to inject your economic theory into a serious political debate at that time? I think it came again. I think there was, I would say there was a difference between, say, the German position and the British position. I think the German position came, again, from a different view of the way the economy works. And the genuine belief, uh, based, I think, on incorrect evidence, but the genuine belief that uh, fiscal austerity would actually make things better. In the case of the UK, I think it's more complex. I think the government wanted to show that it was tough. Uh, I don't think it had thought through very hard about the implications of fiscal austerity, but felt that, uh, you know, being tough was, was the message to send. So I think in the case of Germany, it was probably more an intellectual issue. In the case of the UK, it was more a political issue. And how did you, how do you think that maybe we can in future inject economic theory into the political debates? Well, uh, you know, I think that was, uh, I think what you do and what I try to do is uh, marshal facts. Uh, say, look, uh, you know, let's look at history, what happened when there was fiscal austerity, when is it that it was actually expansionary? And I have in the past argued that in some circumstances it might be, uh, but in general it's not. Uh, so, you know, in the case of uh, 
fiscal austerity, we did some research which was published by the IMF on the fact that first it looked like it had been much more adverse than people expected. Uh, and then looking at the past, in general, fiscal austerity was actually contractionary. I think the accumulation of facts in the end changed the debate. Uh, my sense is the debate today is not the same as it was in 2010 or 2011. I think most people would agree that fiscal austerity is dangerous. It might be needed. That's a different issue. I mean, you may have no choice than to actually, you know, have no deficit. If nobody's willing to lend to you, you have no choice. But I think the realization is uh, that maybe counterproductive from the point of view of getting activity up. So I, I believe that, you know, within the fund, I think I was fairly successful in moving the position of the fund uh, towards a more balanced view. Outside the fund, I have a sense that uh, I didn't convince everybody, or the fund didn't convince everybody, but we made some progress, and I think the position, for example, of the European Commission today is much more reasonable than it was uh, at the beginning. Facts matter, and marshalling facts, uh, you know, in the end, can make a difference. Moving forward, what do you see as the main risks to the economic recovery? I, I don't think at this stage there are major risks in the short run. Uh, it has been a long and tough recovery, but it has been relatively balanced. I don't think the markets are completely out of whack with the real economy. The stock market is high, but given interest rates are so low, it is not obvious that it is too high. I don't see credit bubbles. I, you see it in some places, but I don't see it in general. So the probability that we get the repeat is small. Uh, commodity prices seem to be about right and not on the verge of exploding one way or the other. So my sense is the recovery is going to continue. Uh, then the issue is at some stage uh, there'll be a recession uh, because there's always one eventually for some reason or another and the tools we have to deal with recessions are you know more more restricted than they were earlier. I mean monetary policy is doesn't have a whole lot of leeway so even a mild recession uh, coming in the next few years might be more difficult to handle. Uh, Again, uh, I go back to unknown unknowns. I'm sure something will happen, which I've not thought about. But at this stage, I'm not very worried. I, you know, in the past, sometimes I would see some imbalance. There was much too much consumption, not enough investment, current account deficits being too large somewhere, and so on. I don't see that at this stage. I may be missing something, but that's what I see. But we live in quite politically uncertain times, and I was wondering what you thought the threat of political uncertainty was in, in America with Trump's tr uh, potential trade policies and in Europe there's a lot of political uncertainty. So how does that play into the your, your idea of how the future economy will look? I'm not sure that times are more uncertain than at many times in the past. Although political uncertainty is very high and surely political uncertainty in the US is uh, unusually high. I think we have to worry about trade I don't expect major uh, turnarounds, but I think it could happen. Trade is not something which is going to create a crisis. It is going to slow, you know, if uh, 
if there was more protectionism, what we would see is a slowdown in growth rather than a catastrophic uh, recession, I think. Uh, what's striking is in the US how much, how little political uncertainty has affected either the economy or the asset market. Uh, that's a bit of a puzzle at this point. I want to talk about the IMF as an institution, and mm -hmm. given now that the center of the world economy seems to be shifting towards Asia, and China's made some moves to set up its own multilateral organizations, yes. like the Asia Investment Bank, I was wondering to what extent you feel that the IMF is, is in need of reform at this time. No, I think as an institution, the IMF, I found the IMF to be a very efficient institution. So in terms of how the IMF actually acts uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I don't think there's a need for major reforms. In terms of membership, uh, it is clear that, you know, we have to move from the large weight of Europe and to some extent the large weight of the U.S. to uh, a much larger weight uh, to Asia and, and other emerging markets. So I think that has to happen. Um, you know, not surprisingly, the Europeans are not eager to give up uh, power, but they will have to. They have started. This has to continue to happen. But clearly, the, the center of gravity of the world is moving uh, east, and uh, this has to be reflected in the membership. But it is more an issue with, uh, with the board than with the IMF, you know, as a, as, as a company. I think that it is a very efficient company. Moving back to Europe, and given that um, Eurozone finance ministers have recently agreed uh, the latest loan to Greece, um, I want to talk about that whole crisis and whether you feel that there was a lack of European leadership and cooperation, given that French and German banks were, were mostly um, at risk in the Greek economy. To what extent do you feel that it was, it was a failure of political leadership to solve that crisis, and it's an ongoing failure? I don't think so. I think it was uh, more a conceptual failure. I mean, the amount of money which was, uh, you know, lent to Greece is gigantic. So uh, that happened. But I think there were wrong decisions along the way, which made the program much more costly, uh, both to the lenders and to Greece. Uh, but these were in a way, it came perhaps from the opposite, which is the strong political leadership of, uh, of the ECB and uh, Trichet. Uh, uh, so in terms of generosity, I don't think you can blame Europe. I mean, it really gave a lot of money to Greece. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, I don't think it did, did it in the right way and with the right programs. I think that's more the issue. What do you think about the wider Euro project? Recently, some economists are saying that it's doomed. Joseph Stiglitz has recently brought out a book saying that it's in need of major reform or likely will collapse. Uh, do, do you think that the Eurozone project still uh, is likely to succeed, or do you think it needs major reform? I've always had mixed feelings about it, because as a macroeconomist, I don't believe that uh, the Eurozone satisfies the optimal currency area uh, principles that uh, Mondel uh, enumerated, namely, uh, it, you know, when you have a common currency and nominal rigidities, the adjustment of relative prices 
which is needed to make it work uh, just doesn't happen or doesn't happen fast enough. And that's what we've seen in the South, and that's what we see in Germany now, which has a very large current account surplus. Uh, I think, so when people talk about what needs to be done, they're talking about the fiscal union and the banking union. So the banking union has happened to a large extent, and that's great. Fiscal union, I think, can go further, but it is not a magic wand. It will help, but, but it will not solve all problems. The issue of relative price adjustment, of how to reestablish competitiveness when you've lost it or when you have too much of it, this is not going to go away. So I think one has to be realistic that the Euro project will never work perfectly. There will always be tensions. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the euro has done great things, I think, as well, in terms of increasing competition, decreasing costs, and so on. Uh, so where we are today, I think I'm quite convinced that the euro should stay. I'm surely not in favor. If, if we were to start again, I think that we would ask the question of whether it's worth doing. But given that it is there, given the cost of getting rid of it, you know, which is many, many times uh, type of cost that is involved in the Brexit discussions, and we see the mess that it is, uh, I would say you should stay with it. Whether Greece should stay with it, I think is more of an open issue. They're trying to basically get back to health within. Maybe they succeed, maybe they don't. They need an enormous improvement in competitiveness. It's going to be very hard to achieve. Uh, so, but except for, for Greece, and I know how the Greeks feel they want to stay in. Uh, I think that the Euro project will continue. It will again never be perfect, but uh, maybe better than the alternative. You mentioned Brexit and the economic yeah. fallout from that, and I was wondering if you could comment on what you see as the likely future economic consequences of that, as it seems to be going currently. I mean, it's an extraordinary waste of uh, time. Uh, uh, because at the end, you know, I, I don't think the effects will be very big, but the amount of renegotiation uh, that is involved, the number of small distortions, small problems that are going to come from it is large. Uh, I'm quite sure that the UK voters, if they had understood what it actually meant, wouldn't not have voted for Brexit. Uh, so I'm not going to make a forecast, but I I suspect that uh, changing your mind may well, well, well I think there'll be a well second come. referendum. Well, I don't know what form it will take, but yeah. you see an increasing number of people saying it should be very soft, it should be very long. I suspect that some stage, some of these people will say, well, why don't we just not do it yeah. uh, and, and stay within the single market and maybe get some uh, you know, some room on immigration. I think immigration is 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 a very complex issue. I'm not sure that the very generous solution which was adopted is feasible. Maybe Europe will rethink a bit how it wants to go at it. Maybe within that context, the UK can get some of what it wants. I do not know. Uh, but uh, again, there are many more important things that the policymakers could be thinking about than that one. Well, you said that uh, if maybe the voters knew at the time that the facts that they know now, they, they would decide differently. But economists from the IMF and other organizations around the world said at the time a whole bunch of different facts and 
experts were dismissed out of hand. So how can policymakers and academics and economists come back into this debate and other d debates and make the case for expert opinion? Well, you know, this is this goes far beyond reaction to economists. This is kind of a anti-elite uh, movement, which which is clearly uh, there in many countries. I mean, this one, you know, the one we're in now uh, uh, is, is a prime example. How do we convince people that the experts actually know something. Uh, I just wrote a piece with Jean Tirole in France about the role of economists and how they can improve things. I don't, again, I don't think there is any magic remedy. Uh, I think we can do a number of small things, which is I think the public feels very often that if an economist says white, the other economist says black, and therefore they know nothing, and there is no agreement, and therefore why should we listen to him or to her, right? On many issues, there is actually a very wide consensus. So I think that showing that there is such a consensus uh, is actually useful. Again, it's not going to make a total difference to the world, but it can. So this. Actually, there has been some progress here. Chica the University of Chicago has created a site in the U.S. in which it has it asks about 50 economists who are reputable uh, their opinion on particular issues, and we answer. Uh, you know, we agree, disagree. Do we? Uh, that two dimensions. First, we say how much we agree or disagree uh, with a proposition, and the second is how confident we are about our agreement or disagreement. And so on each issue, you actually, there's a website where you journalists can go and they see that on this issue, no, most economists believe that with fairly high confidence. But on that issue, no, there's a wide diversity of views. Uh, again, that's a drop in the bucket. But you know, I think things like this uh, can help. Uh, journalists in general have an incentive to present economics says, you know, him against her or yeah. her against him. It's more fun. Uh, I think they should be more responsible. If we can make them more responsible in some ways, that would be good. But again, it's it's part of a much larger movement, which is the anti-scientific, anti-elite uh, movement. Uh, you know, and how we deal with this uh, education. Uh, and uh, that's not going to happen in the day. So looking at your native France, recently the new president, Emmanuel Macron, has instituted a variety of reforms to labor laws and yes. um, into the public spending. And I was just wondering, especially given that the IMF have recently praised those reforms, I was wondering what your take is on the reforms he's doing and if you think they're enough, if they go, if they go far enough. So I should first say that uh, I'm not exactly an objective uh, outside uh, uh, expert. I've basically, you know, I've, I've supported the government. I've advised uh, some of the teams. I've, uh, so I, in general, I think that he's doing the right thing. Um, I think it's. I mean, the, he has been incredibly lucky, uh, you know, in getting elected and getting a large majority. So he has some space to uh, to play. What I like about him, I mean, the issue of reforms is uh, some reforms are just very hard to make. 
And so if you try, you fail, but if you do too little, nothing happens. I think he has found the right compromise, which is that he knows he has, in principle, five years, during which, you know, if it's reasonable, he will he will get his way. Uh, and there's a plan to actually have five years of reform with a big chunk now, uh, and the big chunk was, you know, this summer, uh, with labor reforms. and. Uh, he seems to have succeeded in getting true reforms through without getting, you know, all the unions against him. So it looks as if this is going to work. Now, this has, by itself, these reforms are important, they are symbolic, but they are not enough. And so my hope and my expectation is that this is going to be followed by more reforms, and he has five years to do it. So I'm, I'm fairly optimistic as to what will happen. A problem that all advanced economies seem to be facing is low productivity, and it seems to be quite a pervasive and difficult <coughs> problem to try and solve. What are some of the main policies that you would recommend? First, I think there's still a big issue about measurement. Uh, the more you uh, look at the way the productivity data is put together, the more worried you are that uh, we're just not measuring it in any way. So the possibility that, in fact, productivity growth is higher than we measure. I think that's very high. Uh, the probability is very high. Whether the measurement uh, has increased so that, in fact, we're doing just as well, but we don't know it, uh, this is also a positive probability uh, statement. So it could be that there is actually no issue except an issue of perception. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, it, it is good to have higher productivity growth. Uh, in the end, there's a number of small things you can do, but education, R&D, competition, the old uh, recipe is, is the way to go. And another issue which you sought to address when you were at the IMF was the issue of inequality, which yes. you brought to the forefront of its policies. And now with the way that advanced economies are going in terms of creating the gig economy, do you think that inequality, we're seeing as the gig, the gig economy seems to exacerbate inequality to some extent, um, do you think that inequality is becoming maybe harder to address? I think the trends behind increasing inequality are very strong. Uh, you know, people are focused on trade, but skill-biased uh, technological progress is there. So as long as we have skill-biased technological progress, I think the uh, movement towards more inequality is, is going to continue. I think that the way firms are reorganizing by moving to outsourcing also uh, makes labor weaker and, and will lead to potentially more inequality. We're seeing this. At the same time, so this is the negative message, which is uh, it's going to be really hard to undo or to stop. Uh, at the same time, what I've been struck by is that countries which are face, facing the same general forces, such as France and the US, have very different outcomes in terms of inequality. I mean, in the US, as you know, inequality measured by relative wages according to education has increased a lot. In France, it has reduced. These are two countries which are faced with skill-biased you know, technological progress and trade. Yet one country has avoided the increase in inequality and the others has not. So this makes me think that institutions, social compacts, actually play a fairly major role so that we might actually be able to, uh, to control the uh, 
the increase in inequality. But that's a that's a very big issue indeed. Olivier, thank you for chatting with us today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. This episode was produced by Ben Frasher and edited by Daniel Ray.